Hey folks, Randy Newberg here with another episode of Leupold's Hunt Talk Radio. Thanks for being here on this really cold February morning. Whew, it is cold in Montana, but we're not the only place where it's cold. That's uh, it's, <laughs> it's cold everywhere. But uh, today, I am doing a podcast that is going to be a little bit different than most of what we do. Um, those of you who follow our platforms, you know that in the last two weeks, we've been using our platforms to fulfill part of our why. And part of the why of our business is to create advocates for the cause. Uh, the cause we promote is self-guided public land hunting. And part of that is a bill introduced in the Montana legislature. It's called Senate Bill 143. And that bill was brought forward by a group we call a MOGA, Montana Outfitter and Guides Association. And there's a lot of back and forth on this, right? Uh, the, the summary of the bill, as it was originally introduced, would have taken 60% of Montana's non-resident deer and elk tags and gave preference to those tags for anyone using the services of an outfitter. Well... A huge push, thanks to so many of you, came against that. Uh, people realize, hey, there's a lot of resistance to this. Uh, it has now been amended, and it came out of the committee amended. The 60% is now down to 39%. Um, so it still is, is a bill that's going to have a lot of friction. And I thought, all right. Let's have a discussion about this. So I invited, and he kindly accepted this invitation, Mac Menard, who is the executive director of the Montana Outfitter and Guides Association, and uh, asked him, Mac, do you have time to come on and, and give your case? I sent him a list of questions, not questions, but talking points, and said, these are the things that I think are relevant discussion. I'll give you 20 minutes to make your case about why this bill is, is helpful, you know, what it accomplishes, what your rationale was for MOGA bringing this bill forward. And then once you make your case, I'll start, you know, pushing back a little bit and, and giving you differences of how it's seen from the perspective over here. Uh, and, and I just want to tell people that this bill uh, is one of many that's out there. This is a regular basis, a regular occurrence for bills like this to show up in state legislatures. And yes, what you're hearing here, what, what you're going to listen to is a Montana discussion. But it affects all of you as non-residents because if we take a big chunk of our tags and say we're allocating preference to that big pool of tags to... XYZ group, while the, the, the rest of you who don't use that service, in this case, service of an outfitter, that affects you a lot. So the other part is I can assure you that bills like this are happening or similar bills that affect your hunting, your access, your fishing, your conservation. There are bills in your state legislature that are doing some of these same kind of things. And I want you to understand how you engage in this, how you can be part of the process. Because more and more, these issues that affect us 
are no longer issues that go to your fish and parks or fish and wildlife committees. They get drawn into the legislative process. And quite honestly, we as the hunting community, we don't like politics, so we ignore it. We don't have a great expertise in the political process. So we're behind the game there. We always rely on our 501c3 organizations, which are nonprofit organizations. We're not a 501c4, which is a political organization. We're not a 501c6, that is an industry lobby organization. So the fact that we send our money and make our membership and all these conservation groups and nonprofit groups, we cannot expect them to risk their 501c3 charitable status and go over and become a political group. So that inherently puts us behind the curve. So when this discussion is over, hopefully all of you realize the importance of engaging in the policy issues in your state legislature, maybe even at your county commission level, at the federal level, wherever it is, um, and you'll you'll start feeling comfortable doing that because that is where I'll call it. You know, they say hold the line. Well, that's one of the places where we have to hold the line, and the line is being, if you want to say, you know. <laughs> redrawn or whatever you want to call it, the line for public hunting and access is in danger every time a legislative session convenes. So I hope none of you expect that this is going to be any sort of booby trap. I've assured Mac that you're not going to walk into something where I'm going to surprise you and blindside you. That's why I gave him the talking points in advance. Uh, he and I both know this is going to be a respectful but challenging conversation. Uh, but hopefully some benefit comes of it. That That's the idea of doing this. Uh, so any of you thinking this is going to be, a, oh, Randy really got him on that one. Uh, there's no surprises. Mac knows everything we're going to talk about. Uh, and I think that's the only fair way to do it. If I were to try build a podcast platform by inviting guests and blindsiding them and not showing respect for the, the differences of opinions, I would pretty soon have no guests willing to come on this podcast and there wouldn't be much value in this podcast because you don't want to hear me just ramble and carry on. So anyhow, that's what this discussion is going to be. Senate Bill 143 in Montana, a bill that would take now, as amended, 39% of our Montana non-resident elk and deer licenses and allocate preference to those people who sign for the use of an outfitter. They get first crack at 39% of those licenses. So anyhow, because we have so many great sponsors, that's what allows us to produce this content and deliver it to you. And we appreciate any of you who take the time to listen. I have a great friend, Jerry Pritchard, and he's fond of saying, and he can say this because he's known me since we were toddlers. He said, Newberg, the fact that anybody listens to you shows you how far a line of BS can get you in America. So thanks for all of you who take the time to listen, because Jerry is probably correct. 
it's often a line of BS, but I sure appreciate all of you. But let's talk about who makes this possible. Leupold, right? This is called Leupold's Hunt Talk Radio because of our great friends at Leupold. If you go out to their website, leupold.com, you're going to see they introduced 17 new products in 2021. We didn't have a shot show this year for them to make their big announcements. So go to their website. You're going to see some really, really cool stuff. But what you're not going to see is their humble nature of keeping it quiet about how much they support conservation and public access and the shooting sports and the Second Amendment and all of that. They don't brag about that, so I do. But loophole.com, go there. If you're in the market for optics, they should be on your list of considerations. Nosler, huh? Those great folks at Nosler, they are working so hard. I, I don't know how they could work any harder. Every time I call over and talk to some of them, they're like, oh, man, <laughs> this demand for ammo is crazy. Uh, so they're trying their best. They're working as fast and furious as they can to try keep ammo going out the door. But we're buying it so fast, they can't. I don't know how they're ever going to catch up, but I guess it's a testimony to having 7 million new gun owners in 2020. Just think if each of them shot two or three boxes of ammo this year. That's 14 to 21 million boxes of ammo. (laughs) No wonder all the ammo companies are, are pulling their hair out trying to keep up with demand. But I haven't heard any of them complain about how robust business is. So, but... Nosler, amazing company. Uh, They have just expanded and enhanced their licensing and royalty agreement with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. So a lot of the bullets and a lot of the ammunition you see uh, has the Elk Foundation logo on it. And those, every one of those dollars go to RMEF for all the great work that they do. Thanks to our friends at Nosler. So Go to Nosler.com, check it out, and look for it on the retailer's shelves, uh, and hopefully you get get to using it. And I can assure you, this is there's not many guarantees I'll give, but I'll give you a guarantee here. Nosler ammo, guaranteed to perform better than the person behind the trigger, at least in my case. So, uh, Also, we have Mystery Ranch backpacks. Um, if you want to have an amazing backpack, look no further than Mystery Ranch. Uh, I have pretty much every model out there. It depends on what I'm hunting, where I'm hunting. But those of you who watch our content mostly for the elk hunting, you see that I'm always using either a Metcalf or a Beartooth. Uh, two amazing packs. They're, they're all amazing packs. Uh, Pintlers, the you know, the pop-ups, uh, you name it. Marshall, I have them all. And they're way more capable than I am. And if you want to save 10% on that pack... Go out to our friends at GoHunt.com, and when you buy it in their gear shop, use promo code Randy and save 10% on your Mystery Ranch pack. Go Hunt, Randy, Mystery Ranch, saves you 10%. And then we have our friend John at the Wild Alaska Seafood Box. Uh, those of you who are interested in the greatest seafood you can get delivered to your doorstep, and have an interest in helping the small fishermen who are catching that, who have a conservation ethic about concern of sustainable wild fish stocks, this is a way for you to participate in that. So go to the wildalaskaseafoodbox.com, use promo code RANDY, get some amazing 
Alaska seafood delivered to your doorstep. And with every subscription that uses promo code Randy, John's going to give you scallops for the life of that subscription. And last is GoHunt.com. It's application season, right? If you want to know about draw odds, unit analysis, strategy articles, staying up to date on all kinds of stuff, this amazing 3D mapping system for your desktop, uh, go to GoHunt, sign up for that insider. And when you use promo code Randy, they're going to give you a $50 gift card in their gear shop. So with all that, that's one of the longer introductions we've done because I wanted you to understand the context of how this discussion is going to unfold, what the expectations should be. Listen to everything with an open mind. Uh, you know, I'm an advocate for the position I promote. Mac is an advocate for the position he promotes. And uh, listen to it, see what you think, and uh, hopefully we move forward from here. Uh, but anyhow, Senate Bill 143 is about ready to be dissected. Quick as I hit this button, Max on the other line, and uh, we're going to have, uh, have a talk. And uh, appreciate y'all being here. Here we go. Well, folks, uh, on the line with me today on this very cold Saturday morning in Montana, uh, it was only about 18 below here in Bozeman. Uh, but our guest is up in Helena, Montana, uh, Mac Menard. Uh, the ex I, I'm going to say the executive director of the Man Montana Outfitter and Guides Association. He might have a, a better explanation of what his job is. But anyhow, Mac, appreciate you taking the time to, to be on here and have a discussion with us. Well, Randy, thank you very much. And I am looking forward to uh, just a, a good civil discussion on the topics and um I am the executive director of the Montana Outfitters and Guides Association. And, you know, the association is a trade organization, just like a whole bunch of others across the state. Um, we're a 501c6. Uh, we advocate on behalf of the industry. We um, have, a, a you know, a, a place in Montana's economy, history, and heritage. And uh, it's a job, Randy, I've had for nearly 17 years. You and I have uh, had opportunities to work on issues together in, um, in the past, and, and it's a job I enjoy doing. I was, uh, prior to this, about 30 years a uh, fishing game biologist and um, had the opportunity to bring my family to Montana after moving out of Alaska to um, take a job, actually, in the director's office with fisheries here with fishing game and uh -huh. eventually moved on to the... Um, the Outfitters and Guides Association. Okay. Well, you moved from Alaska, Fairbanks, if I remember correctly. So you're one of those people who can say, I moved to Montana to warm up. <laughs> I don't know. I don't feel that way today. I got to tell you, I think my edge is going, man. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to be happy when this week's over. And if the weatherman's correct and we're back up into the, you know, the, at least the above zero mark. Yeah. No, we're supposed to get wind this starting at about noon today and our wind chills are supposed to get in the 30 below. I mean, mm. I'm just not that tough anymore. I knew I saw some people said they're going ice fishing today. Yeah. Like, you know, you people aren't right. But uh anyhow, uh I appreciate the the background Mac and and I do appreciate you being here because uh there's a bill out there that you and I both know has had its uh it's a uh, 
I don't know if controversy is the right word, but just has some strong opponents and some strong proponents to it. Uh, it's Senate Bill 143 in the Montana legislature. Uh, it had a, a Senate committee hearing in the Senate Fishing Game Committee two weeks ago uh, at that committee. Uh, and, and anyone who didn't watch it, part of my audience uh, is not familiar with how the legislative process works. Uh, you being in charge of a 501c6, uh, the C6s and the C4s can go and do a lot of lobbying and, and uh, be involved in politics way more than the C3 organizations. Uh, so you know how this process works. I mean, you're up there regularly, but a lot of my audience doesn't understand even the processes of it goes to, you know, there's a sponsor, it goes to a committee, then goes to a full vote in either the House or Senate, then goes to the other chamber committee, full vote, and then to the governor's office. So along the way, I might interject some of that uh, detail of, of how that works. Um, but I think you guys were the ones who found uh senator ellsworth to be the sponsor of, of this bill is it fair to say that senate bill 143 is is a moga can i use that acronym rather than montana outfitter and guides association well sure i think that's a that's a good one i think we're pretty well known around the state i suppose but yeah it was uh requested by moga randy and um and you know it it was designed to meet uh, a fairly specific need and concern and to do it in a way that um, minimized the impact on um, our, our uh, fellow resident hunters and uh, our visiting non-resident friends and but optimize the economic benefits that can accrue by by managing an industry that is um, you know, a major economic driver in the state. So yes, we, we did put it forward. Okay. Um, so little, a few highlights of the bill. I, when I started all my analysis of this bill, uh, it had a 60% number in there. Now it's at, I think the, the amendment I saw came out of committee that I downloaded this morning is 39%. The new yeah, number? that's that's correct, and and you know the I, I, let let me back up and 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 sure. get a little big picture here if I could. Um, you know, there's there's thousands of small businesses across the state of Montana that depend to some degree on the clientele the outfitter brings to town. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, these things cover everything from motels, grift shops, grocery stores. Um, all of that. And, and the issue that we were faced with, particularly in the recent three years, is the, the uh, issue of a lottery. And, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes, I'm sure. But that lottery creates a great deal of instability. And, you know, we're, we're, this is a, a very positive um, approach to solving that problem. It's, it's not intended to guarantee any one business gets a client, you still have to be able to have your brand like you do, Randy. You need to have great customer service. You have to have adherence to laws and regulations. And it's it's predicated on the idea that you reward those positive attributes. And that's how success in business is derived. And then all the ancillary uh, businesses that depend on you uh, also find that measure of stability. And, and again, big picture, the outfitted 
recreation in Montana is the fourth largest economic driver in tourism. I mean, that's a mind blower when you think about it. It's, Does, um, it's that behind. includes fishing and backcountry yeah, it, trips. It, it that's, that's not just hunting. It, that's true. It isn't just okay. hunting. And the okay. economic return per hunter is a staggering number um, because hmm. it's uh, the fisheries side of it is pretty high volume. But yeah. regardless, collectively, it's an important number. And, uh, you know, we know from um, the University of Montana that, um, uh, that, you know, they're returning at something around five to one in terms of its economic benefit to the state over the non-outfitted visitor. And so when you when including you cons- you're talking the general study is fishing it, it's all types of, of yes yes okay and 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 I mean let, let's let's focus on that I'm using these general numbers right uh, I would argue that it's probably quite a bit higher in just the hunting side of things because of okay. the cost of doing business but I think the general numbers paint paint the um, an appropriate picture so given that backdrop. And given where we are in today's, you know, essentially we're going to be facing a pretty serious economic issue coming to Montana. You know, how did we, how did we uh, arrive at something like Senate Bill 143? And I, I think this is, if you'll allow me, I think it's part of the discussion. And, and we set about, MOGA set about working this issue, um, oh, I'd say at least a year and a half ago. And um, looking at ways to um, to solve this problem of instability, and uh, try not to, uh, you know, create a lot of problems, but at the same time uh, figure out ways to get it done. And, and things that we did, Randy, was we we looked at options. We looked at um, we looked at the idea of. Um, Increasing the number of licenses, as you know, they're they're limited now, and right. um, by, by statute. Anyone by statute, listening, right? Montana, Montana statutorily uh, at this point, anyhow, before this bill, issues seventeen thousand elk deer combo slash elk only licenses and forty six hundred uh, deer only licenses to non residents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so we looked at it and we said, okay, well, one of the ways to get around this thing is to fix that number. And it was it 1976, 78? When, when was that established? Do you remember, Randy? Yeah, it was, it was somewhere right back then. Yeah, and so, you know, we looked at ways to address it, and we, we abandoned that idea. Um, that one didn't sound like a particularly good idea. Increasing the number of non-residents on the landscape would fly in the face of what most resident hunters want. Um, so, but we did evaluate. We also looked at an allocation strategy. And as I mentioned, um, the allocation strategy is being actively applied in the fisheries world. And we looked at that and said, well, is that a, a mechanism to ensure some measure of stability? Again, always sort of thinking about historic levels, not, not some massive growth. And we abandoned that because of the issue with um, monetization of the value of these permits and knew that um, although the first generation of outfitter that might enjoy that benefit, the next generation of outfitter, it becomes a cost of doing business. 
it becomes a barrier to entry and quite mm-hmm. frankly is um not palatable to a lot of the people um listening to this show right now so we abandoned mm-hmm. that one so what it boiled down to then was all right how about some kind of an early bird uh, special some kind of a way to attract people wanting to hunt in montana up to a certain limit a cap if you will and would commit to montana early enough to improve montana's market share you know our, our market position and mm-hmm. um also be able to capture them but put it in terms of um a level that you know, was sustainable or, or workable for us and didn't disenfranchise um, the non-resident do-it-yourself hunter who wants to come up. And so we initially started at 60%. And Randy, you've been through this process before. There were several elements in that bill that were intended to be um, negotiated, massaged, and looked at. And that's precisely what happened. I will say that the 39% that is currently in the bill is not what it's not what we wanted and i'll tell you why um the way 143 is written anything that isn't used in that early bird period january 1 to march 15th would be the time frame um rolls back into the general draw so there was really no no threat of lost licenses or unused licenses. And, and there was some strategic thinking that said, you know, we're going to take a lot of heat for trying to get this put together. Let's put that number at a high enough level that you never hit it and never trigger the, oh, my God, see, they're growing, you know, and that sort of thing. And the idea being that um, – we wouldn't bump it. And on March 15th, those licenses would roll right back into the general draw. They'd be fully utilized. Well, in in pressure testing this with various individuals, in the, you know, some in the conservation community, some in the legislature, some of the businesses, it became pretty clear that that was probably a tactical mistake. And what emerged was, on, on Senator Ellsworth's part, was a demand that we keep this at uh, historical use levels. And so 39% is, um, you know, it's all these numbers are somewhat soft, but that's what you look at when you say, okay, what's a present-day historical use level? That puts about 61% back into the uh, general draw. That's about what it's been, and we're servicing about 30 nine percent of those folks so the whole process of getting here was a matter of pressure testing two or three different ideas uh abandoning the ones that we knew would draw fire trying to pick the ones that provided the greatest economic benefits to the state and still maintain reasonable opportunities for the do-it-yourself non-resident folks and uh, did and provided benefits to Montanans, not just in the economic ways, but to our our fellow hunters. So that's kind of how we got there. And um, mm-hmm. I appreciate the opportunity to sort of share that that pathway, if you will. Yeah. Um, did Did you reach out to any hunt resident hunting groups as well, you're drafting the bill? 
Yeah, so that's a good question. I mean, you know, in a, in a perfect world, you're going to sit down with all stakeholders and hold a big forum or something. It, we did it individually. We didn't do it, you know, as, you know, one big organization to another. But we mm-hmm. did touch some of the leadership in, in key organizations, Randy. And we definitely touched um, numerous legislators. We touched the business community. Um, and we touched some resident sportsmen trying to get reaction from them on it. So mm-hmm. was it a um, massively collaborative effort that resulted in this bill? No. Was it a matter of trying to find the best set of solutions to this problem? Well, yes, I think it was because that's what caused us to abandon the other the other models that were being considered. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, one of the things I, I sent you a list of questions and sort of an outline of what we were going to follow, Mac. And I I told my audience in the introduction that I'm going to give you however many minutes or hours, <laughs> however long we're going to do this, to to give your perspective. Uh, I, I want you to, you know, go into whatever detail, uh, whatever background you think is helpful. And then once you do that, uh, we'll kind of talk about some of the points you brought up, some of the points I put on the on the list of questions I sent you. Um, so, uh, are there any other things that that you think are helpful for the background of, of a discussion about the finer points of of this? Well, I think you know, I think it's always important to you know look at it as in terms of what you know what's in it for Montana, what's good about the bill. And, you know, as I've said, it's good for small businesses and the state's economic health. I mean, it's not going to be any surprise to anyone that we are, as a state, are going to be looking at one of the largest economic challenges in a post-COVID world that we've seen in a long time. And there may be pent-up uh, post-COVID demand for outdoor recreation. I'm sure you are an expert discussing that topic. But many of the other businesses that rely on the type of service that we provide, you know, the secondary service, it's critical to them. So there is there is that aspect of it. But, but beyond that, we intentionally went into this with the idea that, all right, there's going to be a trade-off here if we can get if we can get this stability issue addressed within the industry and we can maintain some reasonable opportunity for the um, do-it-yourself non-resident visitor, what can we do that is important to the resident hunter of the state of Montana? And I would, I would broaden that to even say the resident sportsman okay. and, and outdoorsman in general. And, and that was an exciting part because you do have the ability to attach a fee to this. And I haven't seen the fiscal note yet. I, I, I'm sure it'll be out on Monday. But I'm guessing, I'm guessing it's going to generate when we bumped by amendment, they bumped it uh, the other day from $100 to $200, a courtesy fee. Um, that's no, going to generate... What that means is anyone taking advantage of these 39% of licenses has to pay a $200 premium for the benefit of going into there. Yeah, precisely. Thank you for that clarification. That's exactly right. But that's going to raise somewhere around one and a half to two million bucks. And so we went after that in a um, a 
kind of a pretty unique manner, uh, Randy. We we set aside, we created uh, a special revenue account, and de- where this money will be deposited. And in the most recent amendments, uh, it's quite specific as to where these monies will be spent and how. And, yep. and it goes right to the heart of something I know that is very dear to you, Randy, and to your listeners. You are sort of recognized as the leader in advocating for public lands and public access. So this, these monies, which are not small, um, 25% would be allocated to the Access to Lands Act Agreement, the PAL Act Agreements, those temporary mm-hmm. agreements that seek these you know, these opportunities to create public access to public lands through yep. incentives with landowners. I think we all agreed on that one last session and supported it. There'd be a, a 25% bump to the block management access programs to make sure that those are adequately and fully funded. Um, perhaps if they consider increasing the, the returns or whatever, there's revenues there for them. 25% into the future fisheries program, and, and that one's particularly dear to me, but uh, realizing that hunting licenses sold to our non-residents are often combination licenses, there is a fisheries component to it. And so the future fisheries program, particularly with a priority given to funding projects that provide public access uh, through private property, would be enhanced. And then the, the, the outright 25% outright purchase of easements to, um, through private property to access otherwise inaccessible public lands. Yeah. So these are, these are the kinds of things that I think are, are possible, and, and they are specifically in the bill. And they're designed to be you know, a very positive outcome of this effort. Cool. So that, that's one of the benefits you see is uh, being there for resident and non-residents, uh, hunters and anglers. I do. I mean, if, if, we can, if we can collectively tackle through incentive-based programs public access to otherwise blocked public lands, we're all winners. Everybody's mm-hmm. a winner. And by the acknowledgement that the outfitting community needs stability for us to be able to um, do the things that we can do uh, within the economy of Montana, the beneficial things that can accrue, if that acknowledgement comes and we can assist in solving this other problem, um, that becomes a win-win. And clearly that was directing our, our intentions as we work through this over roughly a year and a half. Okay. Well, that's pretty uh, pretty complete case you put together there, Mac. We have a, a trial going on in the U.S. Senate today. You should have represented those guys back there. No, I don't want any part of that stuff. <laughs> Randy, I'm uh, like you are. My passion is here, and yeah. you and I are going to be on different, and we have been on different sides of different issues, but mm-hmm. I think when the day is done, um, you and I both know that division in our community is one of the most dangerous things that can happen to us because there's an awful yeah. lot of people that want to pick us off entirely. Yeah. And, um, and that, that's, that's one of the things that bills like this always give me heartburn over is it has 
whether knowingly, unknowingly, intentionally, or unintentionally, this bill has pitted hunters against hunters. And I struggle with just that concept of uh, as a collective group, as a collective activity, are we, is it a one step forward, two steps back thing when we have legislation uh, and more and more our, our issues seem to be getting brought to the legislative arena rather than the commission arena. Uh, but this bill obviously has pitted hunters against hunters, whether it's residents against non-residents, whether it's the do-it-yourselfer versus the, the outfitted client. Um I, I agree with what you said there about how when we we kind of end up at each other, you know, throwing spears at each other, the, <laughs> the bigger picture is someone else is over there cheering us on, you know, yeah, <laughs> beat each other to death. Uh, so that, that's one of the things about bills like this that worry me or, or bother me is I see a huge rub in where the outcomes of this will play out if it's passed. And uh, so, well, you know, I appreciate that. And and clearly, I mean, let's not kid ourselves. The, um, the reaction to this bill being dropped um, into the process was swift, coordinated. uh, Mm -hmm. I'd almost say extreme. I mean, it's like Mm -hmm. we were bringing Georgia level politics to um, a bill Moga's bringing. And, um, I mean, really, but it got everybody's attention and that's, I mean, that's fair, but, but let's also be intellectually honest here. Um, a lot of what was initially put out, I mean, a lot of it misrepresented what was in the bill. I mean, it misrepresented it entirely. I mean, criticisms about the landowner sponsored licenses, the effects on, um, uh, you know, on a number of other things like permits. And, and I mean, I even saw one where somebody was worried about losing their Elkhorn permit. Well, of course, nothing, nothing in Senate Bill 143 affects that um, and nothing at all. And so we did stand up a website and I would I would invite your listeners to look at it. It is um, SB 143 FACTS, F-A-C-T-S. Dot com, and it stood up specifically to address those those facts about the bill and sort of separate that from the passion of the day. And um, in a couple of cases, when I was putting that thing together, I um, actually pulled the statements out from some of the earlier articles and answered them specifically because those misstatements we're driving the narrative for a lot of people. And frankly, why wouldn't they? I mean, they, they read them. It must be true. Therefore this is bad. But unfortunately, um, undoing that is way harder, uh, than creating it. And so anyway, Randy, I appreciate that, but that's SB, uh, one, four, three, uh, facts, F A C T S dot com. Yeah. And I went out to that website Thanks, because, uh, I'm the one who's getting all the blame for. Uh, <laughs> oh no, you're in good company, uh, Randy. You're uh, in really. <laughs> uh, but the the number of your members who have uh, jumped in on all my social media platforms to accuse me 
of, uh, I wish I had the power that I'm being accused of. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, Randy, how many I, people do you have following this podcast, for example? I mean, it's astounding mm-hmm. number, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's huge. What is it? It, I, I, it depends on the episode. It okay. can be anywhere from, you know, 20,000 people listen to one to uh, 150,000 people will listen to one. Uh, it's a but, staggering reach. And, um, yeah. and so, you know, people look to you for that, for that information source. That's true. Yeah. And so when, when people say that there's so much misinformation or, or disinformation, uh, here, here's, I'm going to read the post that I posted on January 29th, and it says, If you hunt Montana deer or elk as a non-resident, please read this. The Montana legislature has been asked to consider a bill, Senate Bill 143, that would take 60% of the non-resident deer elk tags and force those 60% to go through an outfitter. Yep, that's correct. Take 60% of the tags from the general draw and give those to the tags, give those tags to non-residents who use an outfitter. This is a huge negative for the self-guided non-resident to hunt Montana. As demand for tags get higher and higher, cutting the pool of tags by 60% to those who are inclined to hunt on their own is against all I stand for and all our platforms are about. That's everything in that post is factual. of those tags in the original bill would have been carved away for this effort to, as you've said it, stabilize the outfitting industry. And so when people say that this is a disinformation campaign or that it's intentional to mislead people, if all those vectors are coming back to what Randy Newberg said or started, which I, like I said, I'd love, I'd love to take credit for all that, but it's, it's not true. I went back and read everything I've posted here, everything I've posted on my hunt talk forum, and there's not anything that is factually incorrect. Well, Randy, I'd challenge you on one, one statement that you read. Sure. Um, you said 60% and that was the original number. And of course, through, the process that's been amended down we've we've mm-hmm. covered that um yep. but you say it's forced forced that's mm-hmm. of course not true um that's the option they have and if those if those tags were not utilized whether it's 39 percent or 60 percent they mm-hmm. roll directly into the draw and right. so it would, that, it that would really for, is it would that really is kind of misleading so, no it's not because yeah. it would force people that if you want to take advantage of this 60%, you are forced to do that by entering into an agreement with an outfitter according to the language. It says you you must have an arrangement with an outfitter. I so see, I it, see your perspective there. I see, I see how you got there. I was looking at it from a different point of view, but I do see where you would arrive at that. And, and of course, the language about the outfitter tying it to the outfitter was to make sure that there wasn't going to be misuse of this thing. You got you to gotta identify the outfitter. You got to put his name down. You got to put his license number down. You got to sign an affidavit that you're going to be hunting with him. And off you go. So, yeah, no, I yeah. get you now. I appreciate so the I, explanation. I, and I was out of town, or I would have been uh, in Helena to testify in person, but I'd promised my wife after five months of being out filming that we would go see her family the first week of February. Uh, so I was only able to 
carve away from a family gathering to watch the testimony of of this bill. Uh, And it's a term that you brought up that uh, many people have brought up in their testimony that this is, uh, there's two terms that were brought up. One is instability and the other is lottery. Um, And I think, uh, you know, if if we get in a discussion of using what terms, you know, you, you took exception to me using the term forced, I'll take exception to the use of the term lottery. Because in Montana, and this goes back to, I sat on the committee in 1999 that established our bonus point system. Me and a, this was before I had lots of gray hair. I was the only one on that committee without gray hair at the time, even though I've now uh, matured <laughs> to to have that. But one of the things we looked at at that time is how is the system for the non-resident uh, deer out combo tags working? And everyone agreed, you know, that's working good. We don't no no messing around with that. Um, but we don't have a lottery in Montana. We have a preference point system, as does Wyoming, as does Colorado. And preference point systems are designed for the sole purpose of stability and predictability. Um, there, there's, you, the math says you can look at the historical information and you know if your client, or if you're not going with an outfitter, you know if that person has enough points to draw the tag. There, there's no lottery aspect to that. So it, it makes it sound like we're just throwing all the non-residents in a hat, and if you're lucky, you get to go hunting, and if you're not lucky, you don't. And I, I, I look at how how the Wyoming outfitters use it. And this is somewhat anecdotal, but I sent my brother-in-law from Minnesota to an outfitter in Wyoming. He said, go with this guy. Uh, And my brother-in-law only had one point at the time. And the outfitter said, you know, it's going to take three for you to draw this tag. Let's make sure you apply for a point this year and the next year, and I'll put you on the books for the, you know, whatever year it would be. And so having a preference point system in Wyoming gave this outfitter the predictability that my brother-in-law was going to hunt with him at a, in a certain year. So, Well, it can, it can clearly work, Randy. And you are, you know, you are probably the preeminent expert in the, you know, on the D the do it yourself side of the equation, but, but it is a draw. I mean, even with preference points, you apply and preference is given to those people who have more preference points, but then it clicks down, then it clicks down, mm-hmm. and then it draws. Right. And 75% of Montana's non-resident tags are allocated to the preference point pool, where if you have the money or you have the desire to pay that extra money, then you get a better shot at drawing. The, for the mm-hmm. guy who doesn't, he's put into the 25% draw, and, and that's 100% right. random draw right 100 mm-hmm. percent. so that, that, we that are exactly in a lottery in in <laughs> in these cases and and the thing i mean preference works in wyoming and and people like it in fact we didn't we model 
the Montana system around that a little bit, but there's some fundamental differences in Wyoming. The number of residents to, to tags is incredibly different. It's inverse to what it is here in Montana. The demand on the, the resource is much greater here in Montana. We had, just last year, we had 10,000 more applicants for non-resident licenses than we had licenses. And so we know that the preference point system it's going to favor that do-it-yourself person that can afford to pay for the additional price. Um, it does the work to figure the system out. This is not a simple system. And it would be willing to hunt, not every year, but it may perhaps every second or, or perhaps third year. Um, mm -hmm. And a guy that uh, wants to go with a group, maybe you can, maybe you can't, but if one guy doesn't draw, you're out of luck. And, and a lot of times they do fold. So the preference point system has merit, um, I think, as people begin to understand how to use it more. I think it'll work better. But things that are good for the DIY, DIY hunter on this thing, the do-it-yourself guy, is that 143 is going to amend the date and move it back from uh, September 30 to December 31st, so you can make that decision to purchase a point mm -hmm. um, right up to the 31st. I'm not ever sure why. Perhaps you'd know it was set at the 30th of September, but... I have no seemed, idea. Yeah, it just seemed arbitrary, so we took the opportunity to improve that for everyone um, utilizing that system. And because the early bird takes all those people out of the preference pool, your preference points will mean more. I mean, the only way preference points work is if the pool clears. And that's why it's limited to three points in three years, and it has to clear. Well, taking the outfitted client out of that, taking them out of that, creates the opportunity for that pool to clear more readily and so that's a benefit that's not a negative and I'm, as long as there's a reasonable opportunity for our non-resident do-it-yourself guys to draw a tag well then that seems like a pretty good a pretty good compromise there yeah um so quite a few of your members have told me that same thing that you just mentioned uh that it's it's going to clear the non-resident do-it-yourself guy out of the point pool quicker so, you know, in my other life, I'm a CPA, so I consider myself kind of the Charlie Daniels of the spreadsheet here. Uh, <laughs> and so, and I apply, I've been applying in every Western state since, you know, the late 1990s. So I'm familiar. I, I think I've got a pretty good handle on this. So I called FWP and I got the numbers to see where we're at with the elk deer combo, the elk only and the deer only numbers. And I walked through and said, okay, using the 2020 numbers, if we took 39, I, when I first did this, it was with the 60% numbers and I'm like, holy crap. So I adjusted it yesterday for the 39% numbers. So out of that 39% or out of the 17,000 elk deer combo or elk only tags, 39% of that is 6,630 tags. So that means there's 6,630 tags that will be issued before the remaining draw. 
So that means there's 6,630 tags that are no longer available for the people who have to jump in after the March 5th. I think you said the the utilization of the, of this program would be through March 15th? March 15th, and then there's um, an extension to April 15th for the general draw application. Okay, so... A month. Uh, if this has been the historic numbers, and I don't have that, so I, I'm going based mm-hmm. on the fact that you guys said, hey, historically, that 39% our number, so I'm just going to accept that. So I take 6,630 of these tags, and I carve them out and say, historically, this is what would have been gone. What happens to the non-resident who has zero points or one point or... Never has it taken more than two points, two preference points, to draw these tags in Montana. So I kind of said two plus, because anyone with two or more points has always had 100% draw odds as a non-resident. So I look at that, and I say, all right, if we do this, the the two plus point holders, they stay at 100% draw odds for the time being. So... We've carved away. Those folks aren't going to be affected. So after all the March 15th tags are are allocated, the 143 tags are allocated to to outfitted clients, that means what we have left is the 61%. And how does that 61% then get allocated to the people with zero points and one points who are remaining in the pool? So. If you walk this through the math, that means that the folks with zero points, the non-residents who aren't taking advantage of this program, their draw odds go from last year, 65%, go to 0%. The people who have one point last year had a 68% chance, and their draw odds are going to go to about 50, 51%, I think. 68 Just, to 51? Yeah. So, you, and how you do get, you get to zero on the other? Because they've got twenty five percent of the licenses to draw with zero. If you if you buy no points, I, I'm, right. I'm confused so, so, on that. Uh, how do you have a? How does that I mean, possibly be a zero? So some of some of them can draw in the random. Well, they, in that yeah, 20, some of them will draw. That's, some right. of them will draw. But that that, that means yeah. I, I'm I'm assuming that the when I say the fifty one percent of the one percenter of the one pointers. I'm saying that those folks, uh, because we we don't know who's going to draw in the random draw. So I could reduce the 51% by by the 25% that's random. So I'm assuming that just all of it is going to go to the one point. Well, I mean, this whole discussion is is just points to the complexity of this thing. And um, I mean, God bless you for being somebody who is, you know, good enough, smart enough, passionate enough to be able to make this work in your world. A lot of people mm-hmm. aren't, Randy. I mean, a lot no, of but- people get frustrated with this thing and they say, hmm, I, you know, Montana's just too darn complicated for me. No, I, I would agree that Montana, we've written the book on how to confuse mm-hmm. the applicant. But my point is that in Wyoming, the outfitters go and they find the qualified candidates. By saying, how many points do you have? 
they aren't out trying to sell tags in a hunt that takes three points. They're not working with the zero point holder. That's uh, that that just you know that's that's when you're there. So if you try to book all your business on the zero point holder, their only chance of drawing is in the percentage of tags that are the twenty five percent random pool. So if you want predictable and you want stability, you work with the people who have two or more points. You start cultivating the people who have zero and one point so that you know when they get to two points, they're going to be on your books. They're going to be able to draw. And you can be booking more than just one year in advance without having to change the system as it currently operates. You know, if every potential client was as smart as you are and as committed to it as you are that would work just fine what we find you know within this industry and again i'm talking about stability for an industry is Mm -hmm. that the folks i represent are trying to pay their bills they're trying to pay for the shoeing the hay the the forward funding of a truck or tires or whatever it takes to to provide a service and still not know if they're going to get a client um, because of this this draw odds business and and because for them it is financial life and death and for the potential client it's recreation what we find is a lot of people who have an interest in coming to montana stop about the time they have to do all this and so what is recreation and enjoyment for one side of the equation becomes, and consequently, you know, motivation to get it done, to understand this to the degree that Randy Newberg does, it doesn't translate into um, someone being able to lock down that client. And you're saying that we ought to adapt to a lot of what Wyoming's doing My my statement to you is after, you know, t- nearly 20 years in Montana, Montana's Montana. Wyoming's Wyoming. I mean, all you got to do is look at how we managed our, our reaction to wolf reintroduction, and you find out that there's a tremendous amount of differences between the way people look at things and how management happens in Wyoming versus Montana. So 143 is intended to adapt to Montana standards, not not bring in Wyoming or, frankly, Idaho, which is a lot more outfitter-friendly. Um, we didn't yeah, do but... any of that. Um, so we tried to craft something that was a Montana fix that had positive benefits for the resident hunter in the form and outdoorsman in the form of gaining access to additional properties, something near and dear to you, um, and also created the economic stability that is necessary for our rural communities to be able to to sustain themselves and and frankly what what better type of tourism is there than sort of this low volume high price low impact uh, tourism that comes from outfitted tourists i mean it, it's like the perfect combination for rural communities uh, as as a mother or as a person who grew up whose mom owned the only diner in a hunting community, <laughs> you know. yeah, you know, I can tell you that non-resident the volume of hunters was more important than 
how much they had in their pocketbook because but is the volume my, of of non-resident hunters good for the resident hunter himself no I mean, i'm not i'm do, not saying yeah, that what i'm yeah. saying is saying that somehow if i own the diner in you know jordan montana or towns in montana that outfitted clients a small portion of them is better for me than twice as many self-guided clients this, this isn't true i mean you only eat so many meals and my point of that of all that is there is a huge economic benefit that these self-guided hunters bring to gas stations to diners to bars to hotels to a whole lot of other stuff it's it's not like if the, only one side of the non-resident equation spends money. I oh, mean, absolutely, ton, Randy, and, so, and, so and it, that's really it, fair to, to bring up, and that's why 61% of these licenses will go in that category, and 39% will go in ours, and, and the category I represent returns $5 to $1, uh, according to the, the best studies, and I think you, you pointed out that that number's probably low. But it's good enough. It's good enough. It's, and, and all that, uh, if we wanted to, to go into a deep dive of that study, we could break it out in a big way about a whole lot of other things. I'm, I'm not going to do that. But I, I do want to talk more about, that because the point keeps being made of instability and lottery. So... I just I, I I struggle with understanding because you can say well you know Wyoming's Wyoming Montana's Montana but numbers are numbers you know one plus one is two the same as it is in Montana and Wyoming and these systems are exactly the same so to st say that there is no stability and no predictability is not supported by the numbers. Even if you want to discount the fact that Colorado and Wyoming outfitters love their preference point systems, let's let's put that aside. If you are in this business and you, like you said, I mean, you know, they're trying to put tires on the truck and, you know, pay the bills and mend the fence and all that. If this is that much of your livelihood, it seems you would understand this system and you would go and work with those non-residents who are going to draw this year, and you would also cultivate relationships with the ones who are going to draw the year after or the year after without the need for carving this away where here's the, you know, the flip side of it is the self-guided guy looks at it and says, well, those 39%, those 6,600 people, they're going to draw every year, year after year after year because they're willing to pay the $200 extra and they're willing to go with an outfitter. And so that means now as, as the self-guided guy, my odds go way down because there's a bunch of us competing for a smaller number of tags. That, that's just the math of it. Well, uh, there's uh, going to be truth to that. And again, um, you know, you're right. You can, if you can, if you can work with your client and get them to, or your potential client and get them to embrace this with the same uh, passion 
and seriousness that you do as a businessman or woman who's trying to make ends meet, then you're right, it can work, but they don't. I mean, I can give you examples just last year where, you know, <clears throat> some of the, the outfitters reported back a, a 70% draw success. Uh, you know, others reported, you know, 100%. They, they were able to, they fortunately got it all done and it worked and their client base was able to, to work through that game. But, but the truth of the matter is there's a lot of them who don't and who can't or just haven't got the capacity for it and so you end up you end up with these nobody can sustain a, a 25 or 30 percent um vacancy factor i mean consider a hotel or a or an airline i mean that's what they've had to contend with this year in covid and we know a whole bunch of them are going under so yeah, it's I'm... it's difficult that way um but again this 143 was intended to optimize the economic returns from non-resident hunting opportunity in Montana, while at the same time um, providing a reasonable opportunity. And that's that's debatable. In your mind, it sounds like reasonable opportunity is access to 100% of the tags. In other people's minds, it might be reasonable opportunity is access to 61% of the tags when balanced against mm -hmm optimizing the economic return and so that's i mean that's sort of the context in which this is being viewed so those those are mm -hmm. two different points of reference and and randy right. this is the beauty of my con of our conversation today um mm -hmm. we can share those perspectives and you know and people can discuss it tonight around the, the table i'm sure <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure I, I can assure you mac that just the fact that i invited you well, and that you were yeah. you, that you were kind enough to to say yeah i'll yeah. walk into the into the heat of the kitchen yeah. both of us are probably going to get our share of emails saying what the hell are you doing uh, well i don't but, know about you but my text messages are going off the wall right now and they're not even people <laughs> i know who they are <laughs> uh, so here's another thing so we have this bonus point system that is for our limited entry tags uh, you, you mean know, the resident bonus point system resident and non-resident uh -huh. bonus point system so mm -hmm. you want to go hunt the missouri river breaks for elk you want to go hunt the bitter root for you know unit 270 mule deer or whatever it might be one of the hurdles that we've placed on non-residents is that in order for you to be in the running for a limited entry tag you have to at at you have to clear the first hurdle of getting one of the general tags either the general deer tag or the general elk tag or the general deer elk combo tag so this system has been in place now for dozen over a dozen years so we have a lot of non-residents who have been paying for these points every year even if they don't clear the first hurdle you can check the box to say i want to buy a bonus point for towards the limited entry portion yeah. so we've got people who've invested a lot of money and a lot of time and now if their draw odds go down because of this reallocation they're looking over there and saying well this 39 percent pool they're great they get to clear the hurdle every year and so they get to have a crack at these limited entry tags every year. Mm -hmm. 
Whereas me, now I instead of clearing the hurdle every other year, I'm going to clear the hurdle every second or third year. And those are the only years I can apply with my bonus points to try try draw limited entry tech. So this skews, in addition to skewing the draw odds between the two pools of non-residents for the general tag, it's going to amplify the opportunity or the draw odds between those two pools of non-residents even worse in the bonus point system. Well, that's, uh, I mean, that, again, you know, you're a, a pretty smart guy and a pretty, you know, very savvy numbers person, particularly as it applies to licensing systems. And I'm sure not just in Montana, but I, I shudder to think how many states your expertise extends to. But, you know, it depends on, obviously, on those tags. I mean, some of those tags, mm-hmm. you can buy all the bonus points you want. And you're going to be lucky if you ever ever see one. Um, others, you do have an opportunity. Randy, yeah. I, I would I would submit and, and would just like to touch on this. I, the part mm-hmm. that concerns me the most about non-resident, particularly do-it-yourself hunters, the, 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 there are two reasons that I can see that this 143 could really impact them. And mm-hmm. one of them is, is growth underneath the, um, the 39%, you know, or something like that. That's been a fear that's out there, and, and perhaps we'll talk about that in a minute or two. But, but probably more importantly is this, let's just take what's going to happen this year. And my guess is that we're going to see a post-COVID uh, pent-up demand for outdoor mm-hmm. recreation. Um, I think, you know, Montana, uh, it, it's no secret to anybody that was out at all this summer that we had, you know, just an incredible amount of non-resident visitation. And I suspect that that's going to happen again this year. So I it's really too. the number that apply. I mean, last year was 10,000 over. Uh, you know, is it going to be 15,000 this year? I don't know. But that all speaks to the uncertainty if you're trying to be a business in Montana that is cornerstone to our tourism economy. But it also speaks to the draw odds for the average guy coming up here wanting to do it on his own. The second piece that really does concern me and and one of the brilliant things that that i-161 did bring to the table uh one of the real positives was the inclusion of cpi and i don't know if that was your idea or somebody else's idea but it was really smart because they put it in um as a way to inflation proof the non-resident license over time and it was sensitive to market conditions and you being a, a, a CPA you get this better than than most people but and I'm pretty rudimentary here but I know what it does and that revenue stream it's been positive to the extent that it is responsible for keeping our resident licenses down and not having to be changed. In fact, the latest forecasts I'm hearing is that because of CPI and these non-resident license purchases, uh, we won't see a resident fee increase until 2025, if then. Mm-hmm. 
But my concern is, as it creeps up, Randy, and I'd like your thoughts on it, what's the threshold? Because the, the guy who's coming to Montana is looking at increasing prices virtually every year, particularly in a strong economy. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be, if my numbers are correct, and perhaps you've done the math already, I don't know. But by 2025, we're looking at something north of about $1,200 for the elk deer combination. Mm-hmm. After that, it could be, you know, going up by one and a half to whatever CPI is going to be. Um, yeah. And so when does that kick in? And that's the concern I have about about uh, the average hunter coming to do it on their own. Um, is there a limitation there? Is there a threshold, Randy, that you see um, at some I, point? Or what do you think? I mean, there's always a price sensitivity. But Montana, with the CPI, is on a on an even keel. It's going to be 2 to 3% increase a year. Well, we just looked at what the fee increases were in Idaho this year. Huge increases. The increases, and in Idaho, you also have to buy the non-refundable license. So if you want a, an elk and deer combination hunt in Idaho plus your non-resident license, it's more than Montana's combination at this point. If you look at Wyoming, if you want to apply in the more expensive uh, draw to get the, the higher draw rates, just the elk tag is more than the Montana elk deer combo. And in Wyoming, you only get an elk tag. Utah, it's way higher. Nevada, it's way higher. So I say this in the context of if you're a non-resident, you're trying to say, where am I going to get the most value? All of them are expensive. Yeah, (laughs) They all are. Where am I going to get the most value? Well, Montana, by keeping it creeping with inflation, has started to look like a better value and a better value and a better value. And as these other states do this stair-step approach of, okay, it's four or five years, it looks like we're behind the curve, and all of a sudden yeah. we got a 20, 20% increase, that's yeah. part of what's pushing demand to states like Montana. But yeah, this is, I, I think, one of the brilliant parts of that CPI inclusion is it is incremental and it doesn't cause these stair-step jumps. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. your perspective on that, but it it has concerned me because I do know, you know, over in past years there was a breakover, there was a threshold. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, we did not yeah. sell out all of our licenses after one sixty one. So for the audience, in two thousand ten, the, there was a ballot initiative placed on the ballot to get rid of what previously were called outfitter sponsored licenses, and it created a big increase, about a 30% increase in the Montana licenses to non-residents. And what happened? I I have the numbers here from Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Uh, We went from 2011, the first year that that took effect, we had 24,500 total applicants for all these pools of licenses. Then it went down to 23,700, down to 22,700, down to 21,745. So because of that big increase we did of 30%, we had 100% draw odds and we had fewer applicants because relative to the surrounding states, we were not a very good value. Yeah, 
And then as the economy got a little better and the surrounding states start raising their prices in 2014 to 15, we go from 21,700 to 23,900. 2016, we go from 258 or 2016, we go up to 258. 2017, we go to 30,600. And here's the year with the biggest jump. From 2017 to 2018, we went from 30,600 to 35,400. In the 10-year track record, that's where the biggest jump is. And and you've said that we had an increase of 10,000 applicants last year. And I'm looking at the FWP numbers and I'm I'm trying to see where that is because their numbers that they have, we had 38,168 total applicants in 2019 and 38,219 total applicants in 2020. So that's that's only an increase of 40, 41, 51 people uh, between those two years. So I've heard many times you and others have said we had a 10,000 person application or increase in applications between 19 and 20. And I'm trying to find where that number is because the numbers I got from FWP shows that we had 51 more people between yeah. among all these license categories. Well, we definitely so. uh, bumped it up. Randy, that's coming directly. I mean, I, that's in conversations with department staff okay. in licensing. Okay. So, you know, okay. um, but but regardless, it, it uh, it's going to follow trends in the economy. Um, and it yep. always has. And yep. and the 161 thing, I, I think it was closer to 50% increase in, in one okay. license category and yep. 47% in the other category. Right. And it, it was left, significant. Yeah, it was. And it left millions of dollars of unsold licenses on the table, causing um, a very significant uh, budget cr- crunch to the department. Mm-hmm. And, right. and that slowly come back. Um, I mean... Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to lie, You, when you see the economy coming back and you're at the shows like you go to, I mean, it was palpable. Uh, you you know, year one, it mm-hmm. was, oh, man, slow, kicking tires, just talking. And in year two, things have turned around. Holy cow, you couldn't have hung on to, uh, you know, certain types of, of hunt opportunities. So, I mean, you live it and breathe it. So hopefully we'll stay with a strong economy and hopefully we'll stay, you know, looking positive going forward and um but i do think that there those are some challenges that face our you know our non-resident do-it-yourself hunters and um in addition uh you know to what we're talking about with 143 so anyway good conversation on that stuff yeah i want to add a kind of before we go into maybe just some wrap-up stuff here there's one part of this bill that talks about the deer-only licenses, and we call those, what, the B-11s? Is that that's a term we use for those? Yeah, B-11s it's, are, are deer-only. That's correct. Yeah. So right now we give 4,600 B-11 licenses, of which 2,000 of those are allocated to anyone who's sponsored by a landowner. That's actually not correct. Okay. So the, the 4,600 and the 2,000 are additive. So it's 6,600 okay. a deer license. But go ahead. This is what the problem was when we, God bless us for trying, um, when, the, uh, when, the, when the original language was put into the bill to clean up the landowner-sponsored uh, license mm-hmm. material, it was exactly this because 
the 4,600 shows up in one statute, the 2,000 shows up in another statute, and bless the the, um, bill drafter. She wanted to, you know, do what bill drafters do, and that was just do a housekeeping measure and clean it up. Well, it caused, I would say, as much or more reaction in terms of sections of the bill than any other because it was perceived that we were creating a 2000 set aside that was going to be given to landowners that didn't exist before that you know would cause them to sell or you couldn't i mean there this is where the the drawings for you know special tags came in it it just was this incredible tidal wave of mm-hmm. misunderstanding of what was so, being done, but go ahead. I, I, I'm sorry. Yep. Yeah, no, and, and yep. I agree with you. The first language, I could not make heads or tails of it. Yeah. I was like, what the heck? So now I read the new language, and it just says there's going to be 6,600 total B11 techs, <laughs> of which under this bill, the way I read it, the reference says that 39% of that 6,600 is going to be to those clients who sign up for the use of an outfitter. And that's 2,574 techs, 39% of 6,600. Then it does say we're going to keep intact the other statute that says out of the 6,600, we're going to give 2,000 of these to sponsors or people sponsored by a landowner yeah up to up to 2000 up to 2000 any unused uh, either of these like you've said any unused go back into the pool and that's existing statute of course that's right yeah the 2000 is already there so i'm trying to walk through the mechanism of how this works so we start with 6600 as our total we give or we allocate 2,574 or 39% over to the new program that this bill would establish. We then allocate 2,000 to landowner sponsors. And that leaves 2,026 remaining tags that the self guided people are guaranteed that, all right, we're going to at least get to, you know, the, put our name in the hat for that. So that leaves in the deer side, that only leaves 31% of the deer only tags, the B11 tags, 2026 are left. That's 31% of the total of 6,600. That's, that's a big, big chunk that when you add on to what's already there for the landowner-sponsored stuff, which, you know, a lot of, <laughs> I know you, some of those people are going through uh, outfitting. Do you, think, do you think that's a significant difference over what it's been historically, Randy? I mean, that's mm-hmm. pretty yeah. much the same. Okay. Um, uh, I mean, when we've been drawn tags, as we, we've said, we're, in fact, the deer tags have always been sort of the challenge because there are so few of them. And um, yeah. and they're allocated among so many people, but yeah, I don't know that that is a dramatic change in in opportunity. No, um, that's, that's a significant change. Yeah, for the for the self guided person. So the self guided person, because the outfitters are taking the historic average out of that. Um, I mean, that's what they've been using. So how does that? So are, are yeah. you saying that the thirty nine percent? 
was equally blended across the table between the elk tags you know, and the deer tags? It was 39% of both? I, w- I would say that we were working on, um, I, I don't know the answer to that, but that when we, you know, the 39% is, is a blended number across all license categories. Um, okay. So, yeah, that's, that is, it wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to say. I wouldn't be able yeah. to say. And I don't so, know, but, Randy, uh, how many of the landowner-sponsored tags are actually used. Um, yeah, you, I, I do. got those numbers. I, I have the number. Last yeah. year was 800, 888. Yeah. I or, know that yeah, that's always see. been kind of, yeah. a, um, I guess, a little sweetener to the pie because they're they're not being fully used. Yeah. So I, I just look at this, and mm-hmm. last year, if we look at all of the point pools— zero points, one point, or even those with two or more points. For the deer only, the average draw percentage was 73% across the board. Obviously, the people with two or more points, it was 100%. And the landowner-sponsored people was 100%. So once you carve out this 2574 plus this 2000, if they all get used, the, the amount that the self-guided non-resident can say, I know that at least these are going to be there. Given what the remaining pool of applicants are for deer, which you said, which uh, you're correct, they are very high demand, the mm-hmm. deer only. Deer. They really are, aren't they? Now we have a very high demand for even fewer tags for the self-guided non-resident. And so I've, it's, I've, it's, it's going to be a big hit to the self-guided non-resident deer hunter. Well, there's no question that um, this is designed, you know, to benefit Montana in its in in its whole. You know, the um, the economic benefits are optimized to the state of Montana and the businesses that are here. There is a, a, an effort being made to define a reasonable opportunity that balances against that optimization, and so it's a fair conversations for Montanans to have. Um, it's a fair conversation to have about what that optimization looks like and the, and the economic benefits that accrue from that. Um, but also, is that a, a reasonable opportunity? I mean, what is reasonable and how much mm-hmm. is it? And so that's really the, that's the balancing point there. You're advocating very strongly for the, the non-resident, non-guided, and I'm advocating very strongly for the focus to be on Montana-based businesses and families, and that we strike some balance uh, in reasonable opportunity for our non-resident friends. Yeah. So, I we I I'm always hesitant to break into numbers, and I'll tell you, you why, love Matt. numbers, Randy. You uh, love them. Yeah, but you but here's them. what we say, here's what we say in the accounting yeah. world, yeah. and I don't ever want to get to this yeah. point. We always say that. Figures lie and liars figure. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure what you're saying there, my friend. (laughs) Well, I'm saying I don't want to base every discussion on numbers because being the, the, the expert with numbers and stuff, you know, I can try lead people down whatever trail I want. It wouldn't I, I be a fair fight, that, is what you're saying. I got you. I, I, I'm just trying to say that we're, we're, you know, these are these are the basics. Let's not go mm-hmm. any further than what these basic premises tell us, because if sure. we get into all the minutia, 
it's like, whatever. But I think we all would agree that if one group of non-residents gets 100% draw odds by the fact that they use an outfitter, that has some impact on the remaining group of non-residents. And whether it's the 60% we started with, the 39% there now, or even if you went to 15%, when one strata of the population gets 100% draw odds, that is a negative against the people who are not in the strata. That, that, that's just truth. So yep, that's, that's we'll just, truth. There's no... We'll, that, there's, we'll stay that with that. Truth. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a, that's but I, I, I want to go to another thing, and this is, uh, you've been at this for a long time, I've been at this for a long time, and we end up building relationships. And I like the fact that I have really great relationships with both sides of the aisle. I have people who will email me, text me, because they trust me that I'm uh, I'm the, the, there's no hidden part for me. It's this is what I'm advocating, kind of like you. I, you say I'm here advocating for, you know, the your your group. You're a five. You're an industry group, so people know this is Max presentation. I think they know the same of me. So both of us have these relationships with some of these people, and here's the comment that I'm getting on this from some folks who are going to be forced to vote one way or the other is their biggest gut ache of this is it overturns a ballot initiative that got rid of the subsidy of allocating a pool of government controlled or government somehow regulated activity to one group. And this in effect overturns that. And I heard you address some of this in your comments on the bill, many of your members have reached out to me and said, hey, Newberg, you're smoking something, man. <laughs> so I, I, I want to give you the opportunity to explain why you feel this does or doesn't, or maybe I-161, the ballot initiative that got rid of the old outfitter-sponsored license in 2010. Why, why this bill at this time when we already have... A, a an election where the citizens of Montana spoke about their feelings or something like this. Well, I appreciate it again. And, and um, I mean, this is one we need to just collectively take head on and, and talk about because uh, in our view, we deliberately, we, we very thoughtfully did not try to take down 161. What we did was said, okay, the bill, the 161 passed, there were certain elements of that that fulfilled promises that were made. There were elements of it that didn't. And one of the elements that it didn't fulfill was the increased access. That issue, it, it, I mean, I think it's arguable whether there were any benefits in that regard at all. And yet that was one of the tenants uh, one of the benefits that was supposed to accrue. I mean, in the last 10 years, we've lost a million acres of block management. Is that related to this? I, I'm not sure, Randy, but certainly it began to strain landowner-sportsman relations and that sort of thing. So we, we, we deliberately went at it and said, okay, we're not dismantling 161. What we're going to do is build on the existing framework that was created and, and, and was part of it. And foundational to that, 
was the existing number of licenses. No attempt to change the number of non-resident licenses at all. That's an entirely different conversation for another day if somebody else wants to have it. The other thing was that in 161, there was no cap on how many we could have bought. Now, there were price adjustments that occurred the year after that attempted mm-hmm. to, to do that. In fact, they were quite successful at keeping it within a five-year target range. But, but there was no limitation like the 39% is. The CPI was a creation of 161. And as you and I have had just, a, I think, a great conversation on, and I hope people, I hope people can grasp the importance of that, to not only inflation-proofing the price of the non-resident license, but also its benefit that is accruing directly to the resident hunter by keeping your price low and probably low all the way, or flatline, let's put it that way, to um, 2025. You know, so we also maintain the controls that are on the outfitter now. You've got your special use permit controls. If you're a public land outfitter, you've got some NCHU that was intended to control the industry as well. um, So reserving those tags makes for a optimization of the economic benefit to small, you know, to small business in Montana and those that depend on outfitted tourism and seeks a balance on reasonable opportunity for our non-resident friends. I mean, the, the, the part that is elemental to this then, and this discussion about 161, is that it is not uncommon, it is not unprecedented for a legislature to step in, and we're not asking to overturn 161, we're asking to tweak it or to adjust it. So create the funding source that addresses things like um, the beneficial programs that will accrue for uh, gaining public access to otherwise block public properties, the 25%, you know, go into the land access agreements, 25% to the block management, 25% to the future fisheries programs, 25% for the permanent easements through private property to access otherwise blocked public lands. So these are elements that build on the passage of I-161. And I guess I would submit this, if your only goal was to put your knee on the neck of the industry, then, okay, then uh, 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 guilty as charged. But that wasn't what the intent was. And so... We want to build off of that framework, keep the elements that are working, and then enhance our ability to gain access to public lands that are so important to so many. So that's that's our logic on it, Randy. That's how we went through it. And um, uh, and again, it's not it's certainly not unprecedented. Um, there are examples just in the last two years where we're seeing ballot initiatives having to get addressed by, and I'll use the term loosely, adults, you know, at the legislature. Um, yeah. We're asking them to do it, and we expect them to do it when things are not going as they originally were intended to. So, yeah, thanks for that. So, so uh, uh, the message I get from some of these folks who are are not that excited about having to 
face an audience and say, yeah, I, I voted for a bill that overturned the general concept that all of you vote, not all of you, but, but passed by a majority uh, that said, we're no longer going to allocate part of a revenue stream that the state somehow is involved in to a small handful of people. That, that, that was the general premise of 161. And now we're saying we're going to codify and make into statute a, a rule that, whether it's based on the historic use or whatever, we're going to codify and make in our law something that is the complete opposite of the principles of 161 that were defeated versus the principle of 143 are very, very at, at opposition. And some of these people I'm talking to are like, that's probably my biggest gut ache of this thing is how do, how do I explain that? And I think I, the, the opportunity I just gave you there, you, you did a better job of explaining your, your position to it than what any of these people have been able to. And, well, Randy, and these are the people who are going to have to vote on it. Yeah, no, and, and that's so. fair. I mean, it's fair, but I guess when I look at it, I say, okay, an action is taken to achieve an end. And, and like I said, the disclaimer to that is if it's just to put your knee on the neck of an industry because you don't like them, well, then, okay, that, no, I fine. Don't, and I don't, but I don't think any, any, there's there, a few people yeah, who, who yeah, view it that yeah. way. I'd say that on the, the on overwhelming the, majority, that's not. Yeah. They, they want to see, I want to see every outfitter in every state sure. get filthy rich. Well, I, I'm, I'm a small. That, I, all my clients are small business yeah. owners. I want to see them yeah. all get filthy rich. So we're not. I mean, obviously, that's that's not our game plan here. But that said, and and I didn't mean to take that diversion necessarily. But let's um, when you take an action, it's for a purpose, and mm-hmm. the action itself isn't the purpose. The action itself is to create a result. And when we went through I-161, and you and I both bled over this thing, you know, emotionally. I didn't bleed physically, but it was rough. Yeah. And there mm-hmm. were promises made. There were expectations that drove um, the discussion. And at the end of the day, some of those were met in the form of CPI. Um, some of those were met in the form of maintenance of existing levels of non-residents on the landscape. But others were not. Others were not. And this bill creates funding so that, and it has to do it through a mechanism. It has to have some mechanism to do it. But it creates the funding to address the things that were not. And so, therefore, um, if you're more concerned about the action and not the desired outcomes, then I can see where you'd be in that camp. If you're interested in solving um, the or meeting the expectations or the desired outcomes, then you adjust what happened a decade ago so that you can. And that's the intention here. Okay. That, that, uh, that you've explained the intention, and I think you've done a very good job of explaining it from that perspective. A lot of the legislators who have to vote on this. Mm-hmm are still seeing it as, oh my gosh, I am going to get lit up. 
but anyhow, that that being what it is, yeah, uh, that's why they pay them the big the, bucks, Randy. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> you've you've talked about the access part of this. That the two hundred dollars is going to get put into this account. The the two hundred dollar premium that people have to pay to take advantage of these new set of or you know this new allocation of licenses and a couple things you know i've heard many times uh, you've said it a couple times today and i've heard it uh in the hearing that block management were a million acres less part of that this is accounting okay <laughs> part of that is how they accounted for the acres when they said hey we can no longer we can't be counting these public land acres enrolled in block management Instantly, we lost a huge number of the reported acres just because they're no longer counting the public land acres in that. So that's a big part of what accounts for the million acres lost. Another big part is up in northwest Montana. We all know that Plum Creek sold their land, uh, and they were a huge enrollee in the block management program. So there's there's two things that pretty much account for the million acres lost. But I want I want to go to this segment and I'm going to throw it out in the context of all the other bills that have come up in prior sessions and are either bills introduced in this session or draft bills yet to be introduced. And we have bills in this session that will restrict the ability for conservation easements to be used as an access tool. We have bills in this session that are going to put a cap on how we can use Habitat Montana money. We have bills in this session that are going to make certain gifts, transfers, easements, or purchases subject to the control of the state land board, which has historically been rather unfriendly to the cause of access. So. We throw this bill, this portion of this bill in here in the context of a huge attack on access in the Montana legislature. And as a resident hunter, that weakens a whole lot of this language that you're talking about of, okay, 25% goes to hunting access programs, 25% to the future fisheries programs, 25% to the POW program, uh, private access, and it, whatever that was. And then I read some of this language that is even further. It says, any easement funded by this section may be granted only across private land to public land that is leased by that landowner. So if that landowner has access to a huge piece of public, but two or three other landowners have the grazing allotments on that land, we can't use this money to get access to that land, which it's just continually restrict, restrict, tie the hands, tie the hands where... And it, there's even and so I read a sentence in this bill that says you 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 can only use it if the the public land you're trying to get to meet certain categories. Is that well, is that section three you're talking about, Randy? Uh, Do you remember? Let's see. Um, this is uh, new section one, paragraph three. Okay. Uh, part. Uh, okay. okay. Because no, there's paragraph a, four. Yeah, there's a couple of different references in here, and mm -hmm. and um, and so my point is, 
and this is somewhat of a different thing. And maybe as an industry lobby group, you, you, you say, hey, <laughs> not my farm, not my pigs. You guys take care of this. But as someone who represents the public land hunter, and <laughs> I say that always with a little bit of hesitation because my CPA world is helping private landowners maximize their property rights to make the most from those property rights. And I tell my audience, if you have access to a private, you're a fool not to go and do it. But my platforms are here to speak for the voice of public land hunters and access is critical to that. So when I see a bill like this one, 143, that has all this language in there that it, it almost looks like we're going to put the sign out here that says we're helping with public access, but don't read the fine print. And accountants like me, we read the fine print. We measure it in the context of all these other bills that I'll just, I'll lump them into this term. They're attacks on public access. They're attacks on the tools that we use to improve public access. And then I'd look at this and it's like, wow, here we have very similar language that we can only do it if it meets this criteria and this criteria. And if somebody else over there has access to that public land, we can't buy an easement to get to that big chunk of public land. So it, it, it creates a sense of uh, just lip service to the cause of public access. So most resident hunters who read this are discounting this whole public access part of it. And I'm, I'm just giving that to you as, yeah, that's as perspective, really, Mac. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. it and, and it's really, I mean, so much of what we're faced with today in in this on this issue or any one of a hundred that we might face in a given day would cause damn near anybody to be a skeptic i mean really it doesn't speak to the best values that we all really aspire to does it but in in this no, case randy um we took very specific steps. And, and this is actually one of the more exciting parts. I mean, if you're kind of a, if you're kind of a breakthrough junkie and, and you're concerned about, you know, okay, we're going to all this trouble to create a, a, a source of revenue. How do we make sure that it's used the way it's supposed to be? Well, one of the most interesting parts of this thing, and it's right there in the bill is that it will create, um, a class B10, B11 license account administered as a special revenue fund, mm -hmm. special revenue fund. So this is one of those things that, and we worked with um, Washington DC federal aid on this because as you know, and you're a student of this, um, and, but a lot of the audience may have, you know, they know DJ Wallabro, Pittman Robertson, but the diversion of funds and protecting these funds and protecting where they're spent seems to be uh, an ongoing um, effort of education at the legislature. And to a large degree, that is attributed, I think, to term limits and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, we're turning over people all the time, so we got to re-educate them. But when we worked it out with um, the D.C. office and then down in Denver and the department, we were able to arrive at the creation of a special revenue fund. Now, that gives mm -hmm. it a level of protection that some of the others don't. This isn't general license funds. Right. Now, if they don't fully utilize it, and I mean, I'm sure you'd agree that this 
the responsible thing was to roll it back into the the fund so that they can at the end of the fiscal year use it the way they need to use it but um to meet another another important need but this was one level of protection that was built into 143 um to address the very concern that you are articulating now and uh, you and i both having been in this for so long there's always these times where uh, other bills, other efforts come forward, and there's this give and take of, all right, what do we get out of it? Over the course of the last 20 years, Montana hunters and anglers have been promised that the money we put into Habitat Montana could be used for access. And I think most of us agree, as much as we could have disagreed on some of the bills and some of the trade-offs that happened to establish Habitat Montana, Putting, earmarking a portion of our license, a very small portion, but a, a very small portion of a huge number of licenses turns out to be real money. What do they <laughs> used to say in Congress? You know, a million here, a million there. Pretty soon you're talking real money. Uh, <laughs> this Habitat Montana Fund has real money in it. <laughs> and what do we see in this legislature? Bill after bill after bill that tries to put a lockbox on that. So the money keeps going there. But we can't spend it. So it's hard for resident hunters to take efforts seriously when every promise that's been dangled out there in front of us in the past as part of a negotiation that, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll give and take because that's worth it to us. Five years, eight years later, all of a sudden, here comes legislation to lock that up and say, yeah, we gave you that, but you can't use it. And so I, I just say that to hopefully help the audience understand, hope you understand why this access piece is almost a bit of hollowness for the resident hunter. When now I'm looking at all the bills, if, if I go and testify in Helena for every bill that's going to hurt access, I'm not going to get any work done between now and the end of the session. And so we we can put all this language in there, but if two years from now we have legislators who are anti-access, which seems to be on a regular basis anymore, and we already start down the path that we can only use it for certain landowners and certain types of public lands, it's like, mm, Okay, here we go again. So well, I just throw that is, out there, Mac, to think, yeah. to think about yeah. that in the context of how many attacks we're facing. And I understand you're an industry trade organization, but I, w- I will express to you as, as I have publicly and, and on my forums and to some of your members and maybe to you at times, is it's disappointing when these anti-access bills come forward and we look around, where's MOGA? And the answer we often get is, well, we're a trade organization. We're not an access organization, or we're not, an indi- or we're not a conservation organization. That's, that's a little bit disheartening when the pitch made here for this whole bill is how it's good for this party, good for residents, good for and, – and you've made a uh, – I think you've defended this bill very well and, and very adequately. You're, you're – uh, your members need to give you a bonus this year. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But the, the point of this is 
hopefully you understand why for resident hunters, we at times are like, you know what? We've heard that before. Be a little we, skeptical or, for sure and, yeah, and, and, and challenge it. And, you know, we're faced with this public process. I mean, that's the truth. It's a political public process. And there's going to be these yin and yangs and, and they're going to be, you know, this is not my preferred thing to do, Randy. I'll, I'll promise you. This isn't mm-hmm. what I was designed and built. When God created me, it wasn't to do this. It was not to, me either. It was to be. But you and I bring, I, I mean, we have a responsibility, as you've said, mm-hmm. to be engaged. Yep. And, and I can't be, nor do I have the expertise to be engaged on everything. I'm, I do, I, I want to I leave you with this. And, and mm-hmm. um, I mean, a, a thought, and then, then we can wrap up. But I do yep. chair the... Um, I do chair the Legislative Sportsman's Caucus Advisory Council. Mm-hmm. And that was a council, the advisory council was originally created by Lantani many, many years ago when I mm-hmm. was first working with MOGA. And, and it kind of came and went, and, and the Legislative Sportsman's Caucus came and went. And a mm-hmm. couple of sessions ago, uh, Mark Lambrick, formerly with Rocky Mountain Elk, somebody you know well, Um, invested a tremendous amount of energy into working with some Senate and and, um, House uh, leadership to stand the program back up again. I I attached my wagon to that process, that that effort, because it forced us to be among competing interests and have discussions like you and I have just had for an hour and a half. And we're doing it um, on behalf of so the Montana Sporting uh, the Montana Sportsman's Caucus charter is to vote pro hunting, pro fishing, pro trapping, pro recreational yep. shooting. Yep. And it's been an exciting thing to do because we we are having dialogue. We are meeting. In our case, the AC meets every Tuesday and. And we go back and forth on bills. So there's a number of bills that are coming forward. We've taken positions on them, and, and those positions are forwarded to the caucus itself um, for their consideration. And so mm-hmm. there are there are emerging, I think, emerging very positive dialogues going on that, um, you know, maybe at the end of the day it's all just a bunch of wind. But I somehow or another, I think the communities are, are ripe for discussion, are ripe to come together on some things. And, and at least when we disagree, we're not going at each other's throat. Um, and so I just wanted to put that out there that, um, you know, MOGA is engaged in a, I mean, as are other very credible organizations in that mm-hmm. caucus effort, in an effort to speak positively toward pro-hunting, pro-fishing, pro-trapping, pro-recreational shooting, um, yeah. the policy. Now, I'm, I'm very familiar with yeah. the Montana Legislative Sportsman's Caucus. I'm very familiar with the yeah. Congressional Sportsman's Foundation oh, and their, their Congressional Caucus. Yeah. Uh, and I, I guess... Uh, one of the things about a bill like this is knowing that you chair uh, the advisory council and knowing that the sponsor of this bill, Senator Jason Ellsworth, is also 
one of the caucus, the legislative sportsman's caucus leadership members, that a bill like this got introduced, got thrown on the docket, and all the rest of us in our groups who are part of that caucus had no input, no say. There was no reach out. It's just here it is. And hopefully you, well, you see course, how, how, course, how that Senator looks. Ellsworth is no longer in leadership on that. He's, he's stepped down, as you know. Um, no, I, di- I didn't know that. Yeah, he stepped down. He's got his other roles, you know, within the legislature, and we're sorry to see him go. And, and, um, okay. and unfortunately, he- so did Senator Kohenauer. Um, she... Not, not for lack of interest, and um, and and it's really kind of, you know, I'm kind of sad to see that happen because she was one of the, one of the real stalwarts when we were trying to put the legs back underneath this thing a couple of years ago, and uh, but at any rate, it, it changes, and and we're having the dialogue now, and um, yeah. and we did, I mean, we we covered this at the very outset of the um, of the <clears throat> discussion here, we. We didn't develop this in a vacuum, but we also didn't host a great big forum. Um, and, <laughs> I, you know, I'm pretty confident that no, and, it and, wasn't a great big forum. I, I knew it was coming. Yeah, of course. I you mean, did. I, he- I, I heard and, it was coming. Yeah, it's and, not. A, it wasn't a secret, and we were just trying to develop it as thoughtfully and as um, uh, yeah, as thoughtfully as we could, um, so that we got the best product. Like I said, we had. Uh, evaluated a number of other options. We, we went through them rigorously. We pressure tested them with legislators, business community, members of the sporting community, um, and just tried to figure out, okay, what is the best answer to this instability that we're facing? How do we, how do we arrive at economic benefits for the state of Montana balanced against reasonable opportunity for the non-resident uh, do-it-yourself hunter and how do we make sure that <clears throat> there are benefits coming to the resident sportsman? And, and that's how we ended up at 143, um, as mm-hmm. opposed to some other pathway that uh, had we chosen it, we'd be sitting here having this discussion on something else, I suppose. Yeah. Well, I, I think we've had a good discussion. Uh, you know, for, for me, the points that I had coming into this is trying to address the the idea of pitting one pool of non-resident hunters and their opportunity to, to you know, like a teeter-totter of why put more weight on one side than the other. You're making your case for why it should be. I'm probably not going to convince you and you're probably not going to convince me. Uh, I'm also interested in how the letting our audience know the process of how bills like this come to be mm-hmm. uh and then if there are any legislators listening which you know the ones who've reached out to me probably are so busy that they're not going to but uh i i'm, I'm interested in hearing more to the basic premise that we're going to or that you were <laughs> this bill asks some of our elected officials to overturn the general ideas of a prior uh, ballot initiative. And again, you've made your case about it. I'm, I'm, I could sit here all day, and I'm sure Mac is like Randy. You still haven't convinced me. Uh, well, and, and what the you same, have the same con- goes both yeah, ways. What you have convinced me of, Randy, is that we can, in today's world, sit down and have a thoughtful discussion 
and I don't mean some damn hug fest or anything. I'm right. talking no. about a, a thoughtful, meaningful discussion. And still, at the end of the day, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing you downrange sometime. Um, yeah, and, and always yeah, will. So I, I really appreciate the tone and tenor that you brought to this. This is my very first podcast, so, you know, there you go. <laughs> but um, I really appreciate it. And, um, yeah, you are to be commended with, with how you you manage the discussion here. And um, it's your show, so I'm going to shut up and let you close it out the way you feel the need to do it. Well, I, Thank you. I don't have much more to close out, Mac. I, I hope the audience understands that when you provide platforms like this, you, you, I can't, because I, I can hear some people already saying, Newberg, hammer them on this. Newberg, what about this? And I'm sure some of your people are saying, Mac, what, why are you letting them off the hook like this? My point is, conversation is more important than winning or losing the conversation. And having respect for differences of opinions to me in today's world, I think that's, you ask how many people listen or watch our stuff. I think part of it is because we try to be upbeat. We try to have respect in a discussion when the rest of the world, we all want to get on Facebook or whatever and make the other guy, you know, just because this person disagrees with me, they're a no good SOB. That's not the case. We're all, you know, we're all trying to make a living. We're all trying to, to live a life that, that we're blessed to have here in the United States. So, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll add to what you said, Mac, that I'm, I'm appreciative that you would be willing to walk into this because, uh, you, you may have felt that, Hey, I'm walking into a booby trap here and I, and I would never want to do that. And, and I'll take the heat. If some people say Newberg, you didn't push hard enough on this. You didn't push hard enough on that. Uh, that's the purpose of discussion is to let you give your perspectives. My audience will listen to it and take it for what they think it's worth, or maybe they'll be swayed or maybe they'll be like, ah, there's more of the same. We don't know, but we've had the discussion we're, we're all in this in the longer term of hunting. We're all in it together in some way, shape or form. I'm going to continue to refer tons of clients to outfitters every year. It's not like I'm going to say, oh, that, that, you know, this SOP. I get a lot of people who say, Randy, this is all great what you show, but I live in, you know, wherever and I've never been elk hunting. Should I use an outfitter? I'm like, yep, depends on where you want to go. Here's a list of ones I'd go use. And I wish all your members nothing but financial success. I'm friends with a lot of them. And so I I think we just have to understand that, that some of them, you know, they, they, you are here to represent an industry. I'm here to represent the, the other part of that, that is hunters who, who aren't part of that industry. And, and we're going to have differences. And this won't be the last time. Hold up, Mac. <laughs> no, probably not. Probably we, not. We know, based on what yep. we see in the rearview mirror, but, that the road but, ahead, we're, we're going to have differences. But we did open it up, and we did discuss, Randy, a, a major point of commonality, and that is we can be divided on discussions of policy as a hunting community, but mm -hmm. we can't be divided um, in the overarching love and value and importance of what we're doing. Um, yeah. we will stand together when that time comes. And 
I would point wow. people to the um, sb143facts.com because everything I've said um, I've tried to put there as well, and uh, it's got plenty of room for commentary if you need it. And um, <laughs> look forward to, to carrying on with you, man. Yeah, well, I appreciate you being here, Mac. Uh, and yeah, we'll you know we'll see where this goes. Uh, it's got uh, when is is the Senate vote going to be today? Do you know? Oh no, um, no. I, sometime I, this I looked, week. I couldn't. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I couldn't don't see know. it on. The, and then it'll go over to the House, and we'll have a chance to you know each make our case over there and then if it passes the house and ends up at the governor's desk we'll, we'll all sides will have a chance to make their case there and then there will be more bills and more bills and more sessions and more sessions it's you know the the game is now played more in the political arena than it is in the commission arena and i've i've been edu- trying my best to educate my audience that hey we have to educate ourselves and and gear ourselves up for the fact that politics is part of this policy game anymore we we no longer have all these issues uh in front of commissions the legislature has has jumped in and and that's where a lot of these topics get brought and if you aren't if you aren't ready to play the game there you're going to get your butt handed to you so but all right, Max, sir. stay warm. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap this up, and I'm gonna thank all the people who are listening. Uh, be healthy, be happy, and put a smile on your face because you live in the greatest country in the world. So, with that, thank thanks you. everyone. Thank you.